Hey, this is Ari Herstand, author of How to Make It in the New Music Business, third edition out now, and you're listening to your morning coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart, weekly music news for the new music business. From Music Ally and the Music Business Association, the Nylon Conference Recap. From Music Business Worldwide, Streaming fraud accounts for at least 1-3% to of plays on services like Spotify and Deezer in France, shows an investigation. And from Media, what comes next in the music streaming model makeover? Hmm. (laughs) I don't know, but we're going to talk about that, Jay. We certainly are on a kind of a chilly morning for us here in Southern California, at least. We are glad you are here, and Jay and I are going to get the boogie going right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Top of the morning to you, Jay. It is nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. We had a little... uh... Uh, technical issue this morning, some ghosts in the we machine, did. but we've we got did. it uh, figured out, um, and it, uh, it, the show must go on. Well, and we have talked many times, so we're, this is episode 128 we're on, I and so. um, we have learned a lot over the years on how to do this, and we've we've tried different versions, and, and our first couple of episodes were kind of rocky when we started the podcast, <laughs> right, right. Uh, but we've, we, we, have, we, had, we, have, we have kind of uh, figured out a way to do it. Although it's even even the way we do it now is still kind of clunky. It's, it is somebody, yeah. But you you've got a good setup on your side. My side needs improvement. But then your side today had a had a had a hiccup of a failure. Yeah, so, yeah, a hiccup. So yeah, it'd be it great to do this in a studio together. For those that don't know, yes. you know, we're not in the same room, unfortunately. But we see each other on a screen, so we can have a a conversation. Um, but. And, and we're going to see each other tonight, as a matter of fact. That's right. We're going, to, we're going to a really cool red carpet event for the immediate family. And we're going to see a screening of the uh, the documentary and hear kind of a Q&A session with the guys. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, that'll be fun. That'll be really, really fun. And so I'm looking forward to that as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we'll get, we'll, we're, we have a, a workaround for how we're doing this this week. And uh Hopefully it'll work okay. Uh, fingers, <laughs> we'll find out. Fingers crossed. Um, fingers how about crossed. that uh, cool intro by our friend Ari Herstand? 
Oh, lovely. We we like Ari, and and we are, of course, as we keep saying, his his book, which is now in its third edition, is on that short list of books you absolutely, positively must have because that's right. It's the bomb diggity bomb. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a must have. It's called How to Make It in the New Music Business. I had a chance to talk to Ari about this new third edition and all of the things that are new in this edition and. Uh, this is what he had to say. Ari, our listeners know I'm a huge fan of yours. Your, you know, Ari's Take blog, new music business podcast, uh, not to mention your music. I like the more chill stuff, drifting, girls <laughs> your age, but that's okay. I'm old. You've written one of my favorite books on the music business, How to Make It in the New Music Business, Practical Tips on Building a Loyal Following and Making a Living as a Musician. Whew, it's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. The third edition just dropped. Tell us about that. What's new in this new edition? Oh, well, thank you so much, Jay. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, well, you know, uh, a few things have changed in the last three years since the uh, second edition <laughs> came out, uh, <laughs> namely COVID. Um, and TikTok, actually, were kind of the two uh, biggest things that happened over the last three years in the music industry. Um, so, you know, this new edition, I added 100 new pages. I rewrote uh, the social media chapter from scratch. Um, and, you know, talk a lot about... Uh, how TikTok has affected the industry, live streaming, all the various live streaming platforms. You know, there were over 100,000 live stream concerts um, just from uh, 2020 and 2021 that happened. Wow. And so I kind of talk about those on all the various platforms, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the free live streaming like Twitch or more paid ones like Veeps or Stage It. Um, talk a lot about those concerts. Um, and then just uh, the new innovative ways that indie artists have kind of uh, broken out. And also, you know, what I found so fascinating was uh, the deals, the major label deals that had been offered to artists in the last three years. Uh, they were, I would say they have been the most um, advantageous to in to artists uh, in the last three years. And things have shifted more in the last three years in the major label landscape than in the last 30 years. Um, So I tell a lot of those stories and talk about kind of how these deals were happening. Um, And then not to mention streaming, Um, you know, uh, with um, Spotify, uh, a lot has been updated from, you know, moving just from kind of uh, focusing on editorial playlists into the algorithmic playlists um, and how powerful those playlists um, have become, but really how kind of some of the Spotify editors aren't quite uh, the heavyweights that they were three years ago. It's more about the algorithm and really just about the algorithm across the board. Um, of course, we get into NFTs, talk all about what, what has happened in kind of the uh, the Web3 community uh, and how there's crossover in music, you know, what's happening uh, for better or worse <laughs> in the Web3 crypto metaverse sure. uh, avenue. So there's a lot that's changed and I, I try to cover as much of that as I can. Awesome. Well, continued success, Ari. Much appreciated. Thank Everybody you. pick up that new book. Uh, we'll be talking about it a lot here. Thanks, Ari. Thanks, Jay. Well, aside from being uh, a sharp cookie, man, the guy's got killer hair. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's got no, rocker hair. No doubt about it. And you and I were talking earlier about... Um, you know, we love his podcast and we like Shirley yeah. Halperin's podcast over at Variety. Well, they did a podcast together this last week. They sure uh, did. It was, you know, Ari's uh, podcast. And uh, 
it, it was really good. Um, it really gave you some insights into both of them. Um, you and I have had the pleasure of meeting up with uh, Shirley a few times, and it's always uh, a pleasure. Um, I encourage our listeners to listen to uh, Ari Herstan's uh, podcast. Uh, the title is Variety Music Editor on the State of Music Journalism, but it's so much more than that. So check out Ari's podcast and Shirley's, you know, over there at Variety. Absolutely. Uh, Strictly Business. Absolutely. Really good. And Ari... And Ari talked to Shirley about kind of the focus of Variety Magazine's music department and all yeah. kinds of stuff, which which we have chatted with her over omelets about as well. And yes. uh, it's 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 fun to hear kind of that you know again. And we've we've said this many many times, but it's worth saying again. You know, Variety's coverage is just epic of music, and yeah. it's it's different than it was. Uh, you know, however long ago, they've really, really focused on music in a wonderful way, and it's such a go-to resource for us. Yeah, uh, we sure appreciate it, and uh, yeah. it's nice to hear that conversation that Ari had with Shirley. Yeah, and Ari, you know, and there's there's one other thing I wanted to tell you about. Um, last week we were talking about the Luminate report and what could vinyl numbers have been if there wasn't some of these uh, these issues, you know, with capacity and you know, materials and costs and all of that. And so I reached out to uh, Sarah Robertson. She's uh, the CEO of A to Z Media. And I asked mm-hmm. her about vinyl and cassettes and really like what kind of products should artists offer in 2023? You know, what's important? Um, so I wanted to share that conversation with you. So let's let's let that roll. Sarah, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day to talk with me today. The the first question, and it's it's a big one, you know, there are capacity issues with vinyl, and they have been, and it sounds like it's improving. Um, but can you even guess how much bigger vinyl could be if all of the orders were fulfilled quickly and completely? I mean, I think that it's very hard to look back and say what people would have sold if they had had all the product that they wanted. It was a very disruptive couple of years. I think the true test is going to be as we move forward and disruptions, you know, turn time becomes shorter, availability becomes a lot more accessible for the whole spectrum of the music industry, not just how many Taylor Swift records can you sell, but how much can the little indie sell of each release? I think that 23, we're going to see an expansion of capacity generally and how that will impact on the, you know, the retail will be very interesting to see. And then the answer as to how much is enough, I think, will surely be answered in the next couple of years. Yeah. How how does vinyl production, you know, the, these timelines, you know, maybe a year ago it might have been eight months. And it seems like those timelines uh, for production are coming down a little bit. How do you see this coming year for 2023, those production timelines? I do think we're going to see a shift in timelines as we, you know, move through the year. But the advice that I would give and what we have been saying for years and years is it's all about the planning. It, you know, to plan your releases and get behind it and work with whoever your supplier is to make sure you get what you want when you want it. And that goes whether the turn times are a year or the turn times are three months. You have to plan it, and that's the key. So I think things will come down, and you're going to see things open up, but people still should be planning and planning around it holistically as to when they're putting it out. 
you know, with their vinyl, with their CD, with whatever else they're opening up to their fan base, whether it's merch items, really put it together and, you know, from the beginning to end and work with whoever your partner is to deliver on time. Yeah. I, I noticed that, you know, when I was looking at the Luminate report, you know, we sold in 2022, there were 400,000 cassettes sold, which really surprised me. What kinds of physical items should artists focus on for 2023 for their website, their merch table? You know, what, what, what's important for artists to think about in terms of physical items? I mean, obviously vinyl is the number one. It's what everybody wants. It's the sexy piece on your merch table and all the really cool things you can do with it. You know, we do a lot of special packaging, a lot of box sets. And I think that that works, whether it's a director fan or even in the, in the environment of a touring band. People love to own the story of an artist that they um, really appreciate. But beyond that, I think it's, I think it's creativity. And that's where we've seen the most wins is, knowing your fans and being creative as what you're delivering. Sure, you know, cassettes. I'm always surprised when we see how many cassette orders that we have in-house because the question is who has the cassette players? I mean, but we have done a lot of cassettes over the last couple of years and we're still writing up every day. We're writing up cassette orders. The quantities are much smaller, so I think a lot of these are maybe more promo items. But, you know, we are still actually, you know, writing these up on a you know, daily basis. So when we're talking about a merch table, I think you've got to look at what will creatively speak to your fans. And we've done everything from bobbleheads to prayer candles and everything in between. And it's being original. I think that's the thing is you don't have to just think around the soft goods, you know, your beanies and your T-shirts, you know, think, you know, be a little bit more creative about what you can put out there, you know, to sell. Very helpful, very insightful. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate that. Very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. They do a that's a neat company, yeah. A to Z. They they do a lot of wonderful things. And for artists and others, it's look and see their various offerings. Great, great company yeah. and uh interesting to hear that uh that upbeat recap yeah. of what you should do. Yeah. <laughs> so uh yeah, so lots of things going on. And Jay, when we start podcasts, we must of course be acknowledge our fabulous sponsors. Yes. Uh the yes. Your Morning Coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. We want to take the time to congratulate Banzoogle members for surpassing one hundred million dollars in commission free sales of music, merch, and tickets through Fantastic. their websites. That's a big deal. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music in minutes. All the features you need are already built in, including dozens of fully customizable templates, tools to sell music, merch, and tickets commission-free, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more so you can easily add content from your other online profiles, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Plans start at just $8.29 a month, which includes hosting, and your own free custom domain name. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, that's all one word, to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. Yes, sir. We're also brought to you by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton, with help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and Cisco.
sister blog, Music Think Tank, are published by Live Music and Discovery marketing platform, Bands in Town. You betcha. Bands in Town, over 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yes, sir. And Music Business Association, for more than six decades, the Music Biz Conference has been the point of origin for inspiration, collaboration in the music business. Join us in Nashville, May 15th through the 18th. Yes, indeed. Jay will be buying drinks for everybody out there, and uh, that'll be a fun event to go to. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Uh, By the way, who is Jay Gilbert, you ask? Well, Jay Gilbert, my good friend of more than 20 years, he's a music industry consultant. He is the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter, with which all is built around, including this podcast. And he's a former executive with a couple of companies you might have heard of, including Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music Groups, and and Fox Home Entertainment. That's right. And uh, my good friend Mike Etchard is a longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music Group, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. Yes. And, you know, we, we, we didn't mention it last week, but uh, a couple of important passings, gosh, you know, artists we grew up with, Jeff Beck and David Crosby this yeah. last week. And, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Such tough. And uh, Lisa Marie Presley, uh, you know, it's just been. That's right. Yeah. Um, it's been tough. Uh, it's been tough. And I, the Rolling Stone did a thing of um, showing, uh, I think they had a, a clip of the last performance that David Crosby mm-hmm. did, which was getting up on stage uh, with Jason Isbell, which was in February of last year. And I was happened to be at yeah. that show. And I didn't realize that was his last performance. He, he got up at the end and did a, an awesome version of Ohio. The, the sure. Neil Young Crosby Stills a Nash song. And uh, yeah, that was his last performance. Iconic. And, I mean, uh, and Jeff Beck, too. I uh, I went, to, yeah. I, I met him briefly in Dallas a few months ago. Um Ann Wilson was opening for Jeff Beck uh, there in Dallas. Fantastic show, by the way. And, uh, and oh, I just yeah. bumped into him backstage and just said hi. Um, but that's it's Jeff Beck. I mean, there isn't a musician exactly. alive, you know, that doesn't rave about how influential Jeff Beck was. Including influential guitarists. Right. They will all tell you, yeah, yeah, I'm okay, but that guy, Jeff Beck, he is he is unreal. And I saw him, I went to the uh, Clapton Crossroads uh, event in Chicago, uh, 2007 or 2008, and um, I'd never seen Jeff Beck live before, and he was, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't sing. He's an instrumentalist, and his show was so captivating. It was. Did he have Tal Wilkenfeld playing bass? He did. That was that was the first time I'd yeah, seen. I've Tal. met her. Absolutely, she is was, fantastic. She, and they play off each other. It's it's yes, amazing. You do. know, one other. I don't know if I told you, but we recorded uh, an episode of Music Biz Weekly this last week with uh, Carmine Apice. Oh, yes. What a wonderful uh, drummer. Uh, and yes. he's one of those guys. Like, John Bonham listed him as an influence. You know, he's been around a yeah. long time, um, still making music. Um, it was just a, a great conversation. It was really cool to meet somebody that I'd seen for so many years playing with so many, you know, different bands, you know, with Rod Stewart and with Vanilla Fudge and just all sorts of stuff. 
and Beck Bogert and absolutely, a piece, uh, which was a, was a very short-lived super That's right. with Jeff Beck. So uh, small yeah, world. absolutely. So it is a small world. It's a small world. But you know, as as these uh, iconic artists are aging, yeah. you know, it's uh, end of an era. See yeah, the passings. It is the end of an era, unfortunately. Absolutely. So, well, Jay, what do you say we jump into some of our yes, stories? Yes, please. Uh, some interesting things. Yeah. So the first thing we're going to talk about, as I have the hiccups, excuse me, um, is the Nylon Conference recap. Yeah. This is uh, an event that uh, is put on by Music Ally and Music Business Association. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of interesting conversations that came out of that. Yeah, event. we're just going to highlight three of them um, because these are from mm-hmm. Music Ally kind of recaps of these uh, panels. And I was fortunate enough to see all of these. Um, I didn't attend in person. Um, I attended virtually, but it was really good. And we'll start off with the one with Ula Oberman, uh, you know, who's the head mm-hmm. of music uh, for TikTok. And I... I I had the opportunity to uh, have a Zoom with him uh, a week ago, and he he and I had actually touched base many, many years ago, um, earlier in our careers, and I've been kind of following him through his journey, and what I like about Ola is he's, he's very smart, but he's also um, very reasonable. And he's been on both sides of the fence. He's worked for yes. you know platforms that are trying to license music, and he's also worked for record labels. He worked for Warner Music Group, so he he has a kind of a different approach to it. So the the Music Ally um, the headline for their recap was TikTok Music Boss talks short video long form listening and licensing, and it was moderated by artist growth artist growth CEO Matt Ermey. And, uh, you know, it started with some music trends and, and Ola said the barrier to entry is pretty much zero at this point, you know, talking about TikTok, which he joined in like 2019. Music is such a key part of the creation process on TikTok. And there's really no barrier to entry at this point. Anybody can upload a video, put the right song to it and maybe end up with a hundred million views in a short period of time. <laughs> Maybe we should have underlined maybe uh, just so you know. And he talked about you know some of the recent controversies around TikTok, and this is artists complaining that they feel burned out by expectations that they get onto the app alongside their existing social media platforms. And he said, are we putting too much burden on artists when we're asking them to be so active on social media? He said, that's a real topic, and you can't expect an artist to be making incredible music, touring, and then spending hours a day making great social media across multiple platforms. Which, you know, we've talked about that as well over the years, is, you know, how hard it is. First of all, it's, it's so hard to make great songs. Yes. And then we expect artists to be you know, uh, into social media, all of these things. And he says, that's something we need, we all need to figure out as an industry. But I think one thing that gets lost is that a little bit, a little bit is that most of the music that goes really viral on TikTok, it's not necessarily the artists themselves that are posting that video. They make a great song, which is really what they should be focusing on the energy, uh, their energy on. And then somebody gets excited about the song, creates a video and it goes viral from there. You've got a team of a million marketers and promoters working on your behalf. Right. So let's talk about that for a second because this last week, well, you and I have talked about this before, uh, like there are mental health implications when you have to not only write, record, tour, um, make videos, but then you have to do 
you know, TikTok, for example, and uh, maybe two years ago you posted three to five times a week. Well, now it's three to five times a day, you know, and then you have Facebook, yeah. Twitter, Instagram, Twitch, whatever it is. There's a lot of stress uh, on artists today. And uh, a couple of days ago, uh, I spoke to Ryan Dusick and Ryan was the original drummer in Maroon 5 and he kind of had a breakdown. And mm-hmm. what he did about that was... He got healthy again um, and treated his issues. And then he went back and got his master's degree. And now he's a licensed therapist and he's helping people get through that. So we had him on the um, Music Biz Weekly podcast a couple of days ago. It'll be going live any day. And it's about what we're talking about here, that there's so many things that these artists are required to do now that some of them are having mental health issues due to the stress. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's a stressful, even pre-social media, it was stressful enough with just trying to get the songs together, get an album together, get on the road, and all of that stuff. But now when you layer on all of the expectations, it's just overwhelming. And you can see how people have considerable stress and anxiety about that. Um, but he basically saying that, you know, we, we're, we're saying we don't expect artists to do this. And that's, that's a refreshing thing if you're an artist to hear that, you know, yeah, they, he said they should, yeah, the, the, not something you should be worrying about. Let other people do that work for yeah. you. It just make good I songs. I thought that was really nice interesting. Also, I, the other thing I thought was interesting is, um, he talks about Lear Cohen a couple of weeks ago, you and I were, mm-hmm. were talking about, um, a statement that he had made, uh, in the press and, uh, you know, Ula Oberman, you know, talked about evolving music formats, but he also talked about, you know, that comment by Lear Cohen and Lear's comment was that short form video that doesn't lead anywhere is the most dangerous thing he's seen in the music dis- uh, business in, in a long time. <clears throat> and, Ola says uh, that was a great quote, you know, a powerful and aggressive quote, you know, that short form video is the biggest crisis that the music industry has seen in a few decades. But he said that Lior is a friend of his and that, you know, he says, I don't think he'd mind me poking a little fun at him. I mean, obviously, YouTube is extremely focused on shorts, you know, short form video. So where are you going with this? So the short form video seems to be your biggest priority of the year. He's saying that to Lior. So, you know, and he also doesn't really like the line that, you know, it doesn't lead anywhere, you know. Um, so I, I think it's important that we kind of look at both of those that Leo is saying like, look, if we have our short form videos, well, you're right here in this ecosystem, you know, where shorts are just tied in and you can have interview videos, live concert, you know, you can have everything right there. Um, but I wouldn't underestimate the ecosystem of, uh, TikTok. And the last thing I'll say on kind of the, the Leo comments is he had made a, a comment I thought was funny. He said, maybe I'll call Lior and ask him if he'll integrate or let us integrate a TikTok video into the YouTube music service. You know, you could be able to one click and then listen to a full song. And then he laughed. So um, it, it was really interesting. Right. Exactly. Well, it's, it's, you know, it, it's fun to see those guys kind of, kind of, but, but actually, and, and then Overman did say though, that, you know, it, it is somewhat, uh, they want to be careful because you don't want to get you know consumers used to just listening to short little segments of music, and that he acknowledged that 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 is something that they don't want to see either. So, you know, 
Yeah, so it's interesting to see where the, all this is going to roll. And again, if if they if TikTok has indeed this sort of uh, service they're going to be rolling out called Reso, we'll see if that rolls here quickly yeah. and what that's going to yeah. look like. And yeah, super super interesting kind of um, panel. Uh, actually, it was more just like an interview because it was just him. But that was uh, one of one of several that uh, we're going to highlight today. The other one was Warner Music Group's Oana Ruxandra. Um, and she's talking about music's evolution. She's the chief digital officer and EVP of business development for Warner Music Group. Um, and she said that over the last decade or so, we've been in a world of streaming and streaming has only been defined as a $10 product. We talk a lot about that. Um, it evolved based off of licensing deals that the major labels have given these streaming platforms, um, noting that the listener habits have also played a role. That product has limited what we see as a potential of the music industry quite a bit. And I think that's a good point, uh, you know, as... Streaming has evolved. It's still that same $10 product, but it's not, you know, 20 million tracks anymore. It's a hundred million tracks mm -hmm. and it's podcasts and audiobooks yeah. and all sorts of other things. And as we talked about last week, um, there are a lot of people within the industry that are saying that um, streaming is undervalued and we need one of the ways we can help pay the songwriters and the performers more is by raising the price of streaming. Right. Um, and she was saying that, you know, the streaming industry has evolved in a very conservative yeah. way. She said she's there. She's mentioned in this uh, panel that she sees that as a result of the mindset in the music industry at the time of the original deals with these services, uh, with memories of the impact of file sharing still Good fresh. Point. She said the industry was fairly, fairly risk averse, conscious of what technology could do to the ecosystem. But we have a world today that she believes is feeling the confines of that risk aversion. And a lot of consumers are looking to expand the way in which they engage with music and also the way they interact with fellow music fans around the world. Yeah. So interesting kind of take on that, that, you know, kind of when you when you think back to the world with which these original negotiations happened and all of this, yeah, they were they were you know they were hurting from that from the, from the from the file sharing right. days and that's that it's probably a, a, an accurate observation that there was a fair amount of conservatism yeah. Yeah, well, the way they were we, viewing it you and things. I were working uh, with majors when that was all happening and you went from kind of illegal file sharing to paying for downloads but then mm -hmm. people would just be picking off their favorite tracks and music discovery was right. a whole different thing um she mentions that we've gotten a little bit away from what music was. You know, it's an experiment or experience. It is a moment, it's interactive, and it's social. You know, you would go to a show and have an experience. There was an exchange between the crowd and the artist. And I, I like her, her take on that. Um, the other part that I want to touch on really quickly is she talked about Web3 technologies. And it's always interesting when you hear someone you know, at a major uh, label or distributor talk about Web3 and NFTs and those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she says, I'm not here to say Web3 and NFTs is moralistically good or moralistically bad. There are ways to say any of this stuff is good or bad. It's technology, and we understand that technology evolves. For us, it's how do we position ourselves in a way 
to not only learn from the market, but also help drive the market? How do we invest in the brightest in this space? How do we start using these technologies? How do we start learning? Because we're really excited about these opportunities. And she says, our industry is vastly under-monetized based on how much people consume our music and how much our music changes culture. She says, I think conservatism is out the door at this point, which is an interesting yeah. idea and sort of perspective. Yeah. Interesting take. Yeah. And she's, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and she says, uh, she said that for UMG, for w, UMG, excuse me, WMG, the key appeal of NFT projects is building fan communities with artists rather than making quick profits. She says, how do we allow these those fans to not only have access to those artists, but to buy into this community and also have a stake in that artist and have a real impact on that artist and be activate, activated to be an active community yeah. member? Okay, interesting perspective. Yeah. So as she says, for us with NFT projects, it's really about engaging that community in a more active way. We're working on a lot of different projects and none of them are short-term, let's do this quick thing and win these quick dollars. It's not about that. It's about how we engage these communities over the long yeah. term. Solely exploiting short-term revenue streams is not the way to run a business, which is refreshing to hear that because I think that's that's what I kind of felt as all the last year when all of these NFT things were coming out. It just felt like a land grab. Like everybody was just yeah, it was I, I gotta uh, get it was in like to, a gold to grab rush, the money, right? and we saw that yes, exactly. with. You know, with NFTs that didn't have, you know, other either physical things or other value attached to them, that there was, you know, sort of this crash. Um, She thinks that the biggest impact, you know, is that there'll be new ways to make money for artists of all sizes rather than just the biggest stars. And I thought that was really important. She said there'll be a middle class born out of the music industry of artists. It's been tough to make money as an artist, you know, in the streaming era, unless you're a global superstar. But she thinks that that type of monetization is going to change. So really interesting conversation with Oana Ruxandra from Warner Music Group. And then the last one I want to touch on, which I thought was really interesting, um, there was a panel that uh, with Kadeem Phillips, and he said, if we don't innovate country music, the genre is going to start to fall off. So it really talks about the diversity within the country music industry. And it's been such a hot topic. So it was kind of uh, hosted by um, by Portia Sabin from the Music, uh, um, music uh, Industry Association. Um, or Music Business Association. I'm trying to read and talk at the same time, and I can't. Um, and Power Entertainment CEO, Kadeen Phillips, and uh, also M-Theory uh, CEO and, and a friend of mine, Cameo Carlson, who I highly respect. They had this really interesting discussion about some things about diversity and equal access and in, in not just country music, but just in entertainment, but they kind of focus on some of the things in Nashville, which country music. And I thought it was really, really interesting stuff. Yeah. And, and Carlson began by explaining how there had been a, how there has been a concerted effort in country music to be more inclusive and while there is growing diversity in the artists emerging from the sector, that's not yet matched on the industry side. 
and uh, you know, and, and we have talked that we've talked about that a lot. So we're talking here about the Equal Access Program, and Equal Access, she said, helps connect and open doors for managers from underrepresented backgrounds. Phillips explained how the program allowed him to enter country music after prior success managing hip hop artists. He said what Equal Access did was create a safe space. Participants really got got the opportunity to show a different side to country. And uh, I think it's incredibly important uh, in Nashville specifically and in all aspects of music, but certainly in Nashville. Yeah, you know, Cameo said that, you know, this program, which was funded by CMT, Country Music Television, uh, the Country Music Association, CMA, uh, the Opry and First Horizon Bank, it asks a lot of the black and underrepresented managers that we're working with, they're going to be the only six black managers in a room for a while. You know, it's a burden and we're asking them to kick down doors, but we need it to happen in country music. She goes on to say that the root of discrimination is simple and it's, it's straight up in your face racism in some cases and mainly institutional racism. But this is a topic that you don't hear about uh, too often. And I thought it was really great that at this big conference that they're having this um this discussion and and letting people uh hear what's going on and what's being done right and when she said the rationale for launching equal access is simple this business thrives on money and you're leaving money on the table when you're not marketing to people who look like kadeem people who grew up on country music Duh, yeah, hello. I mean, that's that puts a fine point on this whole discussion. So really great conference, uh, Nylon, you know, with uh, Music Business Association and Music Ally. They did such a great job. Um, highly encourage you to, to check out the coverage. Yes, indeed. Well, Jay, the next one, boy, <laughs> uh, this one, we've talked so much about this and the these numbers here are very interesting. This is from Music Business Worldwide. Mm-hmm. Streaming fraud accounts for at least 1% to 3% of plays on services like Spotify and Deezer in France shows investigation. Yeah. Written by Murray Stassen and, uh, over at Music Business Worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, and Music Business Worldwide is so good at not only looking at these numbers, but seeing what they mean and then what if we extrapolate these numbers to other territories? And most of the people that I talk to think that these numbers are very low, that it's actually much higher. Yes, much higher than that. And as it starts, it says, this is snowballing. And don't forget, and we talked about this last week, uh, Sir Lucian Grange, the Universal Music Group uh, big dude, uh, called out bad actors for using illegitimate means to suck royalty revenue from music streaming services. He argued that these platforms' dominant pro rata payout model needed to change. And then yesterday on the 17th of January, yesterday to us, or probably that was a couple of days ago, uh, uh, Music Business Worldwide carried the words of Nick Dunn. He's the CEO of indie distributor Horace Music, who applauded Grange's letter whilst dropping the bombshell that his company has seen evidence of streaming fraud being carried out by criminal gangs who had even issued death threats to his staff for blocking their practice. With this, well, yeah, and that's just unbelievable. We've there was a piece in Rolling Stone that was really interesting. Um, I've been hearing a lot about this where um, if you publicly state um, maybe one of these companies that's um, gaming the system or, you know, where they're using bots and spin farms or, or whatever the means, um, sometimes they will reach out to you 
and you know they don't they don't want their business being messed with you know so you know mm-hmm. what the, you were about to say you know what this narrative has been missing however is a firm industry verified data on all of this you know the pervasive and expensive issue of streaming fraud and that's just change so in France they have this Centre National de Musique and we're just going to call it the CNM. It's a public body in, mm-hmm. in France, and it operates under the supervision of the Ministry of Culture and Communication. You, re, you may remember the CNM for its in-depth investigation into the effects of user-centric or fan-powered music streaming in 2021. Right. So here is kind of the interesting part of this story. This week, the CNM released the results of another landmark study into France's music industry, this time focusing on illegitimate streaming practices. The conclusion, at least one to three percent of music streams in the country are fraudulent. They are generated often via paid for stream farms by those bad actors in a bid to siphon royalty money away from legitimate artists. The CNN said, by the way, that its new study considered a vast set of data provided by Spotify, Deezer and Cobuzz, plus data provided by a panel of distributors, including Universal, Sony, Warner, Believe and Wagram. The music distributed by these companies, said the CNN, represented more than 90% of the top 10,000 most listened to titles on Spotify and more than 75% of the overall volume of streams on Deezer during this relevant period. According to the report, in France, between 1 billion and 3 billion streams at least, that's important to see that, that, that phrase right there, at least, were discovered to be false in 2021. Neatly enough, those figures were approximately the equivalent of between 1 and 3% of total plays in the market that right. year. Right. So what well so hang we on. Take, what what Murray yeah, uh did and what Music Business Worldwide does is you know they applied that 1 to 3% threshold to a wider industry mm-hmm. figure, right? And so they're saying that the momentous size of the streaming fraud problem becomes much clearer. So the French music market in 2021 generated about 581 million US dollars in streaming rev- revenue uh Annually, that's according to their music body, uh, SNEP, S-N-E-P. One percent of that figure would be about five point eight million U.S. dollars. Three percent would be seventeen million. So, if we apply that same figure globally, the worldwide trade revenue of music streaming platforms, including both paid and subscription ad-supported, in twenty twenty one was 16.9 billion according to the IFPI so 1% of that would be 169 million dollars 3% would be over 500 million dollars so that's half a billion dollars and most people exactly. I speak with think that that's not, that number is higher than that Right, and that's what it says. The, the real problem may be much bigger than 3%, notes the CNN, because it says that its report relied only on fraudulent streams detected by the platforms and eliminated from the sharing of royalties. In other words, they only counted the, fraud, the fraudsters who didn't get wow. away with it. That is such a great line. They, they counted only fraudsters who didn't get away with it. And the part that really jumped out at me was that that CNN report it talks about how hip hop and rap music represented almost 85% of fraudulent streams, rap and hip hop, 85% fraudulent streams. And that was detected, you know, amid Spotify's top 10,000 tracks during 2021. 
Well, and and in this article, it says the the body was has called out Amazon Music, YouTube, and Apple Music for declining to participate and, and or supply data for the study. So we're not even talking about Apple Music, YouTube, and we're looking, uh, yeah. Amazon, yeah. Apple, and YouTube. We're just yeah. So. That really, really, really could could be a a gigantic number. And we we don't really know. So it is dramatic when you think about those kind of that kind of money. Yeah, Um, Yeah. it's crazy. They they talked to um, Jean-Philippe Thiele from the National Music Center. And he said that. You know, for the artists themselves, fraudulent streams disrupt algorithmic profiles and weaken engagement rates since, of course, fake users don't behave like regular fans. He noted that well-known mechanisms used to generate fraudulent streams included false plays exceeding the counting threshold of 30 seconds operated by, you know, robots or natural people, as well as false playlists, illegitimate editions uh, of titles on the platforms. So it it sounds like this is a much bigger deal than maybe a lot of people think it is. Yes. And just to to kind of recap a, a portion of what Lucian Grange wrote to the staff at the beginning of the year, which is the current environment has attracted players who see an economic opportunity in flooding platforms with all sorts of irrelevant content that deprives both artists and labels from the compensation they deserve. So this is a big, big, big problem. And I wonder as we head into 2023, what's going to be done about that and what can be done about that. And can uh, we identify what the problem really is? Because to your point, this is one DSP and it's in one market, France, that they're sort of extrapolating to give you a sense. But we don't know how large this problem actually is. And my sense is that it's much larger than we think. Right. And as we, as we head into the, into the further into this year, you know, we're going to be taught, we're going to be seeing so many more AI products kind of flooding the marketplace and, and boy, it's just really going to be an issue that's got to be dealt with and we'll see who's going to take the yeah. lead on that. And that leads beautifully into our next story because, uh, the story from Midia um, it's what comes next in the music streaming model makeover. And it was written by Tatiana Sirisano. Um, and it's, it's such a great piece. Um, and she touches on a lot of the things like we, we have to make over this business. Um, it's maturing now. And what are we going to do about it? And I thought her kind of recap and her analysis on this was just spot on. Yeah, she starts with saying the long tail becomes the scapegoat. Much of the conversation thus far is focused on culling the long tail. And uh, oversaturation is certainly a contributor to majors losing market share. But a bigger factor is the tectonic shift in consumer behavior. Consumers today are spreading their listening across a wider range of artists and songs, and niches are flourishing. Mm. Some of that time that consumers used to spend streaming superstars is likely now going to mid-tail artists, not so much the long tail as major labels claim. Only 15% of consumers strongly agree that they find it difficult to discover new music, reflecting that consumers may not be as frustrated by the streaming experience as the majors think. So while DSPs can and should do more to cut out fraudulent activity and fake artists that are intended to siphon streams, eliminating the long tail would not necessarily eliminate the change in consumer behavior that is hurting the majors' 
ability to interesting dominate. interesting she said also yeah. you know let's not forget the consumer like every format streaming has changed how consumers consume music right in addition to fragmentation the other part of the shift is passivity even the biggest music fans are increasingly using streaming services to play music as background noise. You know, whether Universal Music Group's uh, proposed artist-centric model that we talked about uh, last week is good for the music business or not, it would go against prevailing consumer behavior. And there's already a graveyard filled with products that tried to change consumer behavior rather than embrace it. Wow. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And she says, what comes next? Everyone seems to agree that the current streaming model is not working, but designing a system that benefits all artists, as UMG CEO Lucian Grange described, it will not be easy. So she's got a couple of possibilities here that are worth teasing out. One of which she said is a label owned streaming services, although unlikely to happen. Labels could pull their music from DSPs and create their own, which would see the market look more like the fragmented streaming video market, where Netflix, Hulu, and HBO Max are swapped for the wow. big three. Wow, yeah. Because that's essentially what Hulu yeah. was, right? That was Interesting. Yeah. And the second one is DSPs expand pricing tier and fan monetization. Uh, the current one-size-fits-all model is replaced with new tier options like consumption level and genre preferences. DSPs also allow artists to charge users extra for exclusive content, fan profile badges, and more. Sure. And she says uh, something she says, uh, uh, DSP differentiation. DSPs lean deep into their differentiated user bases. Spotify becomes the Walmart of music streaming for the mainstream consumer, while more niche platforms like, say, Tidal and SoundCloud lean into audiophiles and social social music users, respectively. Mm. So that's interesting. The Mm -hmm. next one is payout thresholds change. DSPs require songs to reach a certain number of streams in a time period before any royalties are paid. Uh, comparable to the $50 threshold you know, Twitch streamers must meet in order to activate a monthly payout. Mm-hmm. This result, well, this results in a bigger slice of the royalties pie for both major artists and more established independent ones. Interesting point. That is an interesting point, yeah. And by the way, I think that's the way some of the, uh, like when you're uploading your music, if you're an artist, I, sometimes they will not, they, there is some sort of a threshold you have to meet before you get a, before you get that's paid. Right. So, yeah, so uh, that'll be interesting to see if that gets, gets happening. So uh, the other one, she says, independent split off. If the UMG model ends up penalizing smaller artists, intentionally or otherwise, a new breed of independent music DSPs could emerge targeted at independent artists, both fully DIY and those signed to indie labels. These artists remain on mainstream DSPs, but build their fandom and remuneration elsewhere. Yeah, I I struggle with the thought of having uh, DSPs that are focused on a genre, mood, demographic. I think that we've so gotten used to going to a DSP of choice and having access to everything. 
everything. I, I, yeah. I wonder if that could be a, a thing. She says that there's another possibility. A simple solution would be to have a higher royalty rate for lean forward actions like searching for a song or streaming liked songs and a lower rate for lean back actions like streaming radio stations and mood playlists. And that's something we've been reading a lot about lately is, you know, what she's describing, but also should a stream of the Beatles be worth more than the stream of a developing artist or rain sounds or, and that's an interesting slippery slope, that discussion. (laughs) To say it's a slippery slope is an understatement. It is. Um, But I think it's, uh, I think it's an important question to ask because I don't. I, I do think there is a there is. You can you can assign a higher value to something like that than than something generated or something moody like where it's just kind of sonic wallpaper. But boy, you're but you're right. It is. It's unbelievably slippery yeah. slope. She so. says it changes now yeah. inevitable, and that's what this whole piece is really talking about. Is we're coming up on this this new music business and the changing of the guard. And we're looking at, you know, pricing and we're looking at the, you know, how things are valued and we're looking at fraud and all of these things. And, and we're also looking at things like how uh, songwriters are paid and how performers in the U S aren't paid when their songs played on the radio. There's a lot of these issues now that we're addressing that maybe we haven't in years past. So she says, in a way, major labels joining the streaming uh, model debate, that's a sign that that change is really coming. Um, They're joining the conversation now so they can have input on what those inevitable changes are. And it won't be easy considering all of the competing incentives on the table. For example, streaming services are incentivized to fragment as much money away from the majors as possible to retain more negotiating power. But, you know, it's it's positive to see the whole industry agree that a change is needed. And she ends it with, well, let's let the work begin. Yeah. And man, that's going to be gruesome it's not gonna be fun but you know it's it's gonna happen and it will be fascinating to see what happens and how that rolls out and oh yeah 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 but we will sit and we will at least be sitting on the sidelines jay and watching it and reporting on it and that is just gonna way it's gonna be and i think if nothing else when we head into 2024 i think there will have been some pretty substantial changes made in this way so we shall see so on that let us wrap up the show we do want to thank everybody for listening if you enjoy our show by the way please tell one friend we appreciate Jay and that. I would really 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 appreciate that and uh, we also have to thank our wonderful sponsors big thanks to the Music Music Business Association Banzugo Hypebot Bands in Town wonderful wonderful folks that make a, that help us put it all together and we could not do without them but of course we could not do it without you the listener so jay and i say a hearty thank you we appreciate it And on that note jay and i will wrap up this episode thanks for listening and we will see you next week on the your morning coffee podcast you've been listening to your morning coffee the weekly music news program for the new music business Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.